Shrinks Wrap is brought to you by West Coast Mindfulness Institute, a networking group for mindfulness-oriented clinicians. Shrinks Wrap is a psychology podcast where we introduce you to leading clinicians and thinkers and their personal journeys through the field. While we hope you enjoy this dive into the psyche, please note that this podcast is not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy. To learn more about us or to find a therapist, visit wcminstitute.net. Hello, and welcome to Shrinks Wrap. Today, we have a very special episode with a guest interviewer, Dr. Gerald Smith, who you met in our previous interview, interviewing his long-term friend, Michael Murphy. We're very excited for this special conversation between the two of them, where they share some insights and thoughts on the origins of the Esalen Institute. Michael Murphy is a co-founder of the Esalen Institute. He's the author of four novels, including Golf and the Kingdom and the Kingdom of Chivas Irons, The Life We Are Given with George Leonard, and The Future of the Body. During his involvement in the Human Potential Movement, Murphy and his work has been profiled in The New Yorker and featured in magazines and journals worldwide. I hope that you enjoyed this episode, and thank you for listening. Michael Murphy, who is the co-founder of Ashton Institute, along with Dick Price. They met by uh, a lot of coincidences, I think, uh, many years, many decades ago. And um, um, and he's the author of many, many fiction books. Golf in the Kingdom is the best known, I think, which I think is the second best-selling golf book ever done, which is, which is, uh, and, and you, Michael, benefited from that every which way, which I'm glad of. And, uh, also, you've written some uh, uh, one book, which I believe took 17 years of preparation, which was uh, The Future of the Body. Uh, and that's a, a major work. But in starting out, I want to ask you, how you hear you came out of Salinas, uh, right in the middle of the Central Valley, and you, you had a plan for you, and that you were supposed to be a physician. This was non-negotiable. Uh, you were supposed to go to Stanford and, uh, and do what you're supposed to do. What, how did you leave that track? And something was going on with you that made you very open to Frederick Spiegelberg. Uh, as that, what, what, was, what do you think was going on inside of you to, to bring forth? Well, that? you know, Jerry, I, and people have asked me that countless times. Uh, but uh, and, uh, over the last few years, I've been uh, writing uh, reflections rather randomly, not a systematic memoir by any means, but uh, uh, calling up the past. And uh, I, uh, the more I think about it, um, uh, and it's a life review, an ongoing life review, um, that the seeds for what happened to me at Stanford at the end of my sophomore year and being in uh, that class of Frederick Spiegelberg's um, on comparative religion that um, started me on the process that led me uh, to quit my fraternity, quit pre-med, and then, um, in my father's words, quit the Murphys. Um, and um, Did you feel disowned? Well, in other words, it was an explosive uh, turnaround for me. And... Uh, in the very, I, I wandered into um, Spiegelberg's class by mistake uh, because uh, 
the, uh, the, the class I was in, which was uh, in psychology, was in Coverly Auditorium. You remember that. They can seat about 650 people. Uh, but his class on comparative religions had become so popular, uh, it would no longer fit in any other classroom. Eventually, it, it, so it morphed in. And so I sat, I, and I'd heard about him. And so I, they came up and announced this um, at the beginning of the class. And I said, well, I, I'll stay. So someone sitting near me said, well, this will be the second lecture. And he started with the Vedic hymns, the earliest, uh, the oldest uh, scriptures, which today are still active in the world in India. And uh, he came into the class uh, and he had an impressive carriage. Um, you know, he was from Germany, um, uh, maybe six feet tall, very erect. He was then almost 50, and he had been to India, and he had generated a, le a legend around the campus that he brought back amazing stories about India. So he came out, stood in front of the class, utter silence, and slowly all the rustling stopped, um, these... Um, uh, 600, uh, how many there were, uh, now his class was pouring in, 650 came to absolute silence, and he said one word, Brahman, <laughs> Brahman, the, the ultimate term of existence, the ground of existence. And uh, all of us snapped to attention. Now, I think, Those, I think I was going to say this, Michael, is the presence, I mean, the... Uh, Yes. The, the command presence right the there. Command, the command presence and within it a seed of something. So I, so as the, at the end of the hour, a second word, Atman, which is Brahman. Atman, our deepest subjectivity. Um, uh, this uh, basic term of Indian philosophy. So, so I walked back up to the fraternity after the class and this sentence Kept, kept going through my mind. I will never be the same. Oh. And so I stayed in the class. I stayed at the class. And that opened the doorway. Now, looking, oh. there were others in that class. Uh, most of them did not have the enormous turnaround effect that I did. But I've retraced my life, Jerry. And um, I had the seeds of this cooking in me starting in my teens. I was a religious kid. Altar boy in the Episcopal Church. That's, that's the exact question I want to ask you. Something, what set you up for this? There was something, see, something, and I think, God. Yes, God well, that's what I'm saying, yes. You had a sense of autonomy, even with your family's plan for you, you still had a sense that you could do something on your own, or you could never have made this move. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, see, so that's crucial. Uh, no, that's crucial. But this, Jerry, you know, it, it took of nine months from that first lecture because I, I went home for the summer and my brother could tell, we used to play golf, you know, he eventually was a better golfer than me and he got down to a two handicap and um, he was two years younger and he said, uh, Mike's become a golfing yogi. And uh, at this point I was 19, he was uh, 17 or uh, whatever. Um, um, and, um, then I went back to Stanford, re-enrolled re in another class with Spiegelberg's, and it led to a process, uh, we don't have time today to talk about it, that uh, uh, in which the seeds that had, were in me flowered, and it became, uh, I was on fire. I was lit up, and um, 
So one night, sitting there at Lake Lag, Lake Lagunitas, uh, it just came in on me that this is what I was going to spend the rest of my life pursuing, the actualization of the vision that had been given to me. But I said, you got to start burning your bridges behind you tonight. That was the, came with the thought. So I walked straight up to the fraternity and quit that night. And um, the brothers were a little concerned about me. Um, and, you know, I'd been on the XCOM, you know, the executive, you know, you, you were there. Um, so all of that stuff. Um, and then um, the next, within about two or three weeks, I dropped out of my med, uh, pre-med courses and my father it was a shock to the system of the family. It was, uh, you know, Salinas, you know, Steinbeck's written all those books. It was a tough town. Uh, and it was a, a farming community. And, and after the whole town had a plan for you, not just your family. <laughs> 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 no, that's, that, that's a great remark. It's, uh, yes, it, that's how, what it felt like, the, the whole town, yeah. And, you know, Yogi, my father said, well, Son, I hope you don't become like Om the Omnipotent, who was an American guy who lived in Long Island, and he declared himself an enlightened man. And he, he actually, this is a true story, he kept a hippopotamus in his swimming pool, and he invited women upstairs into his, for his ultimate initiation, which involved uh, sexual intercourse. Um, and so my father said, I hope you don't. Become like only omnipotent. Well, see, he was a, he was a good attorney. He thought of alternatives. <laughs> no, yeah, that's very that's good. What attorneys do. Oh yes, no, that's that's a good that's good. And um, but anyway, and then later he became our greatest supporter. And when I was in the army, you know, after I graduated, I, on fire with this vision, uh, the vision that led me to start Esalen. Um, uh, I got a, a a nice big check from him, unbidden, and says, son, this is enough to get you to India and back uh, if you want to go to this ashram, which I eventually did. And um, What a turnaround. What a, what, a, uh, what, a, what a great gift. Yes. It might not have happened. Right. What a credit to him. Yes. And then when we started Esalen, Jerry, he did all our early legal work and... Um, uh, so, you know, that was, uh, terrific. I mean, he was a stupid, my parents were amazing. I mean, to put up with me, you know, my God, uh, if they were Catholics, they, they'd be go straight upstairs, uh, to, to heaven. I mean, anyway, so, so anyway, but that, uh, so that, um, uh, you know, we could talk about what was the actual, um, content, uh, that I can talk about. That led me to um, to start Esalen. What do you think? Uh, and I should add that I didn't know Mike. I didn't know you a lot during these years. I was doing workshops there for for fifty years, but I really didn't know you. I knew of you, and you knew me because of our friendship way back playing golf together. But I went for decades when I was one of the workshop leaders, but I, I, I benefited from your decision and Dick Price's decision to not let a bunch of very um, uh, aggressive, by my view, pretty angry jerks, Fritz Perls, one of them. Uh, and in fact, this is self-serving, but I want to tell you one, which I told you the other day. Uh, 
Prince Pearls, I took a lot of work. I used to pay money to sit in the back of his room to uh, to uh, watch him do his work. I, I was impressed by that. But as I spent more time with him, he came up to me one time. He said, Jerry, you don't like me at all. All you want is what you can get from me. And I said, yes. And uh, and that's where it stood. And Because uh, <laughs> I didn't trust the guy. But you had to deal with you had to deal with him, and uh, and an array of others who were a bunch of warriors. Well, it's still going on, sixty years later. <laughs> sixty years later, it's been a a, a spirited uh, journey, uh, and I've been tempted uh, more than once to call it off and go in a different direction. But uh, it's always it's always been uh, promising enough enriching enough to keep it going. But managing, uh, this is why certain executives get paid the big bucks, is to manage people. You know, there's an old adage in, the, uh, in management that uh, 70% of the job is managing personal relationships uh, up and down the hierarchy of these organizations. And um, so it's, that's been the case. And, but our, uh, part of our mission uh, and part of my dream was to uh, explore into the further reaches of human nature, you know, uh, to use a Maslow's phrase, um, what William James called the more, uh, the beyond, the uh, all of that in us, which is pressing to be born, a greater life. This is a central premise of uh, the vision I held, which was heavily influenced by the Indian thinker, uh, Sri Aurobindo, Aurobindo Ghosh, who had been a primary Indian independence leader, spent time in jail, uh, but was a gifted uh, contemplative and had many realizations, but saw us, as I see it, as part of an evolutionary unfolding of life on Earth. And uh, in the human sphere, uh, the, uh, the evolution of consciousness and uh, its relation to the body uh, going forward. And something kept you from, um, it seems to me, your depth of thinking is so deep, and I think so scholarly, that um, these people who were nipping at your heels, uh, and and I think of a whole, no, I think of Will Shoes is another example, who really had a, had a plan for Eslam. And... Uh, you, you somewhere or other were able to cope with them. Yeah. Even though I imagine it became um, very wearisome because you, how many times do you want to go through that? Right. Well, Jerry, that's a, yeah, that's a great point. Um, I, uh, I, I can remember at least four kangaroo courts that groups within yeah. the larger Esland family kind of set up to uh, call me uh, to, uh, to their path. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, but anyway, I had a, um, enough wherewithal, and Dick Price was an uh, incredible partner in this. If you wanted to go, go into battle, there's not a better guy to go shoulder to shoulder with. I mean, he, <laughs> so. Um, and what people, a gift he was. He really was, and uh, uh, people tried to get between us in those early years. Uh, for example, Fritz Pearls. Uh, Fritz really did have a streak of clinical genius. I mean, he had an eye, an astonishing eye for oh. psychodynamics, and he had been psychoanalyzed by Wilhelm Reich. So he brought that whole issue of the character armor, the somatic armoring, along with the character armoring, 
So the psychophysical, and that was part of the vision uh, that inspired me, is that uh, mind and body can never be separated. And even if we talk about out-of-body experience, which has been a comes up all the time, if we talk about these shamanic experiences, if we talk about what happens uh, for a lot of people in uh, psychedelics, uh, there's always, as uh, the great philosopher Leibniz said, the soul is never without some of its body. Now, behind that is a metaphysical vision that's been held in East and West, that the soul's journey is... uh, um, a co-evolution with the cosmos itself. So, okay, Esalen now, uh, you know, from the beginning, was to entertain these grand visions. West Coast Mindfulness Institute is a networking group for mindfulness-oriented clinicians who are dedicated to learning together and collaborating to better serve our community. WCMI hosts educational events for both clinicians and members of the public to promote learning, growth, and self-awareness. If you're seeking support, follow the link in this episode where our referral specialists will connect you to the right therapist to meet your needs. Visit us at wcminstitute.net. To explore, did these four kangaroo courts threaten you at all? Did you feel... How, how did you hope? How did you cope with these? Children? Well, okay, I have to tell you, I was influenced now, and that's a reflection by my father, um, uh, who you know had us boxing when we were kids, and uh, boxing was his main uh, sport. Uh, but um, I gave it up when I could no longer see my brother's punches. I couldn't see them. His hand-eye coordination was so fast. And after the first broken nose, my father said, you need to have it broken once more because it'll make, you need a slightly bigger nose. He said, it'll be good for you. So anyway, so, but as I grew up in my later teens, um, you know, he said to me uh, once, he said, son, you know, you're the peacemaker in the family. Your instinct is to make peace. You don't get into the battle the way your brother does. And, but he said, um, um, if you have to stand up, I want to tell you one thing, all of us, all of us in our family, we win. You play to win. So, you know, this kind of planted a seed in me. You know, I've never been looking for a fight, but something in me, Jerry, seems to enjoy it if I know I have to do it. So after, after the first or second one of these confrontations, one of them staged by pearls, it would take me a couple of minutes to stage it. It was tough stuff. It was set up to kind of bring me in alignment with his minions. Okay. So uh, I learned when this is starting to happen to relax, don't, don't react, take it in, size everybody up and know who you have to take out. So I would, and so afterwards I would make a list and we'd take them out. Uh, The ones who would pull this on me, set me up, and be that tough, and that means that's the end of you. Yeah. So I can say I was a, I became a stealth assassin. I, uh, and part of me enjoyed it. I have to say that. Now the thing is, um, it's a. Um, so I value my father's coaching is not to not to pick fights, be the peacemaker. But if you have to stand, you stand. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And it's that le- what leads me to admire so much uh, Martin Luther King and the SELC gang. We got to know Andy Young, you know. Those guys were, they they were different in many ways that in this the, the new anger we see now, much of which is appropriate and necessary, but a lot of which is surplus. And um, uh, but King was strong, and um, uh, they won. Yeah. It's the rights movement. They won. He, and he, they, he, I love the point of this to a corny word. He simply would not blink. I mean, he would look. He would look straight at anything. I think. Yeah. Well, this and that whole gang and Andy Young, uh, uh, John Lewis, you know, who recently passed away, uh, Clyburn, who's still left. He's kind of a younger member of that community, based largely in Atlanta. Uh, but that ethic um, is something you need, uh, and uh, I mean, it's so valuable. Um, if you are out for some sort of change, and particularly if it's a revolutionary type of change, um, rather than this thing of going around and, you know, in Portland, these endless, uh, these endless riots, and now that Trump is gone, they can't attack the Republican headquarters anymore. Now they're attacking the Democratic headquarters. Wow. It's <laughs> just picking a fight. Right. Mainly, mainly white kids, mm-hmm. see, in name for their black brothers, and some of the black brothers are not happy about some of this stuff. So, um, because we've had a lot of black-white um, work at Esalen, and I happen to know that uh, this extraordinary evolution within the uh, larger black community, uh, uh, we still don't have the great book to describe all its aspects, really. And it does. it's not all in the New York Times. It's uh, A lot is left out. And um, the wisdom that goes along with strength and everything. So anyway, that uh, that stuff was in play. But so you're right. Um, it was a big issue to preserve, to keep Esalen going and not devolve into a cult. And because so many of the groups that did form in the 60s <clears throat> did become cults. Uh, uh, there were Hindu cults, Buddhist cults, Christian cults, um, and uh, all sorts of cults, and it's a um, it's a problem that we have when we mount the passionate energies involved in growing into this larger life that um, we feel in us, and the religious side of it, and then it crystallizes, say, around a some sort of metaphysical framework, a dogmatic framework, and it happens in therapy. Um, factor, Mike, is this? Um... And I, I'm, I hope you do uh, write this up because you're taking a, you're you're keeping a, a diary on this. And that is the things that, that happened to you that totally beat the odds. I mean, uh, the, I, the the possibility of Abe Maslow and his wife coming down that road <laughs> in the middle of the night um, after having just written that seminal book uh, that really began the human psychology movement uh, for that to happen. And then for you to connect up with them the way you did is um, yeah. is way beyond any kind of number of possibility. And you you've had a number of those things happen, I think. Right. Uh, right. Well, you know, Jerry, that's a great statement. Uh, I at times, you know, have to ask who's writing the script for this thing, and it does uh, force me to consider, um, you know, these religious claims of. Uh, I don't like to frame it in a standard uh, uh, 
religious terms, but graces are given Mm -hmm. um, when you're committed to a cause. And I find it also in, say, writing a book, I've written four novels. Uh, Magic starts to happen once you passionately are in the groove with some project. And uh, Golf in the Kingdom, the first book I wrote, you know, about golf and why I chose that is that's a mystery. But it's opened these the doors to the athletic world to me. And so many athletes um, come around to a kind of quasi-religious viewpoint because, because Bill Walsh, the, you know, the famous coach of the 49ers, we became friends. And uh, as he said, you know, to play in the NFL, you have to give yourself up. And he said that well, the principle of sacrifice, uh, you have to take risks. Uh, most people, have they watch football on TV, but they've never been on the sidelines of the game. Well, you know, and some of these weekend warriors say, oh, I'd love to have a player too. They'd run out there. They'd be lucky not to become a paraplegic on the first play. I mean, you know, yeah. You, in other words, it's life lived out up on the edge, and um, it's um, the magic that happens. And that happened to us at Eslin, like Abe Maslow, driving down the road before our program started. I had given a dozen copies of that book, Tordy Psychology of Being, to the staff. I actually wasn't there when this happened. And he said, in retrospect, later he said, you know, when we drove down, it, it was kind of like driving into the Bates Motel in Psycho. Remember that? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> he said it looked, you know, dark. You couldn't get down. There were no lights. And we had, it hadn't really started yet. We were setting the place up. And immediately he ran into the staff and everybody's reading toward a psychology of being. But you know, Mike, it's not only just that it happened, but also the time in which it happened and the development of your vision. Right. So the timing is in another one of these remarkable connections, too. Seems to be. Yeah, Jerry, right on. Um, yes. Yes. See, two That's, years earlier, uh, you were still you. Two years earlier, you were still you were a bellhop at Ricky's in Palo yeah, Alto, right? Two days a week, is that right? <laughs> I think that's true. You, you so, probably have a better vantage point on my life than virtually anyone else, given the many golf games we played together. And uh, you know, if you play golf together, you know. It's a little uh, shock test. You, you you learn more than you want to know. Uh, I have to say, you know, one of the things I remember, do you remember the time we were playing the Stanford course? And um, so it was at the 18th hole, you and I were in a, I think, an ir- a highly ir- ir- irreverent move. <coughs> so we sat behind the 18th green and watched the suffering of so many of the people coming off the golf course. Now, they spent hundreds of dollars to play. They'd been suffering the whole way through. And then I got laughing to such an extent. And so this game, you know, and you get to know more than you can possibly want to know. But anyway, you've gotten to know um, a lot about me. and But that's true. The What you say about the... Um, the history of Eslin is shot through with this, um, these synchronicities, you know. Um, well, it's as if there were some kind of guiding hand. Well, that's at times I get into this. Now, you know, it's easy to get into a kind of easy new age, easy mysticism, and, you know, it's all perfect. And, you know, the 
one of the great flaws of the hippie ethical portfolio is, you know, oh, cool, man, it's, it's just all good. It's all good. And this all good, you know, can be can lead you into um, incredibly glamorized ineptitudes. I mean, these hippie yeah. ineptitudes that are glamorized, but even with the most skeptical mind, um, some of these coincidences, uh, if you don't pay attention to them, you're really like an ostrich with his head in the sand, the proverbial. Yeah. In other words, it's stupid not to, to say this. So I, um, I am a believer in, um, um, in the um, power of commitment that uh, if it stays on course to invite uh, some sort of higher magic and, and help. And it makes me religious again. But well, you, said, you, you at one point early on asked Paul Tillich, who I think was one of the one of the most important theologians and of that time by far. Okay. And he came to Eslam. And and I think that was part of your attempt to turn turn Eslam into an internal uh, because it's so easy given the, the beauty of the place and all the um, the, the potential superficiality of it, potentially. Uh, you, you want, you want, you want. If you're going to put your life to this, you want some seriousness here. And he was a great example of that. Am I following what you, you're thinking? Yeah. Well, Paul Tillich, you know, um, uh, Spiegelberg at Stanford, where he started me on my journey. Uh, really, he was the agent of it. Uh, succeeded uh, Tillich uh, when Hitler took over in '33 in Germany, and uh, they were very close. And finally, Tillich and others got Frederick out of Germany in, in 1937. He, boy, he played it too close to the edge, but he got out uh, um, because Hitler was taking out. He was, you know, he started doing that in 1933. But anyway, Tillich, um, I, I would say um, he was um, a, um, a big influence on us and his worldview, which, to give it a fancy name, um, well, I like to say evolutionary panentheism in distinction with pantheism, which says that God is all we see, and theism, which says no God is upstairs. Panentheism says both. The divine is transcendent and uh, imminent. Okay, evolutionary panentheism. And he basically articulated that. And um, in fact, the first time I ever saw that phrase, evolutionary panentheism, was in crib notes some scholar had made to a Tillich lecture. This, this would have been 1964. So he was definitely a contributor, and um, uh, we could go on and on along this line. And he had a um, depth psychology that uh, mapped beautifully onto his um, metaphysics. Hmm. And um, there was a lot of affinity among the early leaders, Jerry, you know, Abe Maslow, okay, um, Aldous Huxley, who was a big influence on us, and uh, Tillich, and many others. I, I could recite those. Now, the, the relationship of that stream was not a perfect match with what Fritz Perls uh, and many others brought to us. But there was, Perls was clear. I think he was either an agnostic or an atheist. But I, yes, I, well, he... 
Right. But he brought so much that was good and original. The whole Reichian tradition is important. I I have come to call them crypto mystics, all of them. And Fritz, Fritz uh, was one of these crypto mystics. And this was a phenomenon at Nesson. This was a generation of leaders, a lot of them from uh, Germany and uh, many of them Jewish and um, escaped the Holocaust um, but were atheist in the that sense. Uh, Abe called himself an atheist, but he, he was more and more came out of the, the mystic came out of the closet before he died. Fritz would um, uh, have these experiences at Esalen, which uh, completely um, went against his atheist philosophy. So he was a living contradiction, yeah. and. And, and so we took all that selectively. I mean, the best of Fritz was what he saw and his psychodynamics, his way of working. Um, there was a lot of value there. And uh, on the other hand, uh, after hours, he could be, you know, a mean son of a bitch. I mean, he had, and he had wanton in many ways. Well, you know, you were, I just want to say there's a comment about you. And I think about, uh, in, in my view, how, how what's the right word? <clears throat> how classy you are, because since I know a lot about Esalen, I know that uh, Fritz put up $10,000, he gave you that, and then he, he stiffed you, he stiffed Esalen for, not, I think, another $50,000. Uh, he said, I want the house built. It could not be built for $10,000. $10, I know that building, I've lived there. There's not a straight line in that building no. anywhere, not one. Uh, so, so <laughs> yeah, but here you are, being, being uh, kind, forgiving, and I think it's a nice comment about you. So <laughs> congratulations well, to you. Well, Jerry, thank you. Uh, he actually did give us the 10000 Yeah, he did that. But, yeah, but then, you know, we uh, built quite a deal down there. It's a gorgeous place. And we said, uh, Fritz, this is a lot more than 10000 He said, look, a deal's a deal. I'm not giving you any more money. And, of course, we did benefit. I mean, we did. I mean it was something for us. And then he, uh, you know, when I um, did marry uh, Pat Felix, he thought it was a sign of the second coming of another Hitler. And uh, <laughs> yes. he left. He left Esalen. That oh, triggered because it. Because of that. Well, it was the contributing cause. Uh, he saw he couldn't create. He wanted a gestalt kibbutz because mm-hmm. he loved the kibbutzes in Israel. And um, he saw that he couldn't rule the roost. Uh, and he left in 69. Of course, he, he died in 70. But um, anyway. Well, uh, I appreciate your good, graceful way of handling that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're very kind. Well, look, I, I think we're about up on time, but I just want to say that um, your choice to give some of your time for this and for the, uh, for the mindfulness group, psychotherapists, it's, uh, it's a major contributor. Thank you for doing this, Michael. Well, Jerry, thanks for the talk. It's always great to talk to you about all this. You're a privilege to be with. It's it's, it's mutual, pal. Once again, thank you for listening to Strings Wrap. If you're interested in learning more about Michael Murphy, you could follow the link in his bio, as well as to get in contact with Dr. Gerald Smith, you could follow the link in his bio. If you're interested in Michael Murphy's books, you could follow the link in the description of the podcast. As always, please rate and review. Your opinions are really important to us. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.